Hebrews chapter 8 verse 7 to chapter 9 verse 10, the 27th talk in a series on the book of Hebrews was presented by Jack Crabtree on March 6, 2016 at Reformation Fellowship. The copyright for this recording is held by Gutenberg College, Inc., 2016. Gutenberg College is a nonprofit organization, and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. Handout number 10, Translation, Installment 2016, number 2, accompanies this talk. We'll continue on in the book of Hebrews, chapter 8. We've, we're mostly done with the first part of 8. I'm just going to read it to review and then read on into the next section that I think we'll get to today. A little bookkeeping, if you got my translation emailed to you, the new installment, I'm only preserving a few lines on the first installment and then jump to the second installment. I hope that was clear. I reformatted it a little bit. So, But starting with, in your normal Bibles, chapter 8, verse 1. It's part 14, paragraph 38 in my translation. Now, here's the main point in the things being said. We have such a high priest. He has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. He is an administrator of the holy rites, even with respect to the true tabernacle, which the Lord set up, not man. Every high priest is appointed to offer up gifts and offerings. Therefore, it is necessary for this one to have something to offer as well. Now, with regard to those who offer up gifts in accord with the covenant, who serve with a copy and shadow of the eternal realities, if he were on the earth, most assuredly he would not even be such a priest. It is just as Moses was directed when he was about to finish setting up the tabernacle. Now see, he says, that you make everything in accord with the blueprint which was shown to you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more distinguished ritual service by as much as he is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on the basis of better promises. Then he moves to the next section. Now, if that first one had been flawless, place for a second one would not have been sought. But deeming the first covenant flawed with respect to them, it says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, where I shall impose a new covenant on the house of Israel and on the house of Judah. It is not in accord with the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day of my taking their hand to lead them out from Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I neglected them, says the Lord. This, then, is the covenant that I will covenant with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. When I give my instructions to their mind, I will write them on their hearts, and I will be God to them, and they will be a people to me. And they, each and every one of them, will not teach his fellow citizen nor each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful with respect to their unrighteous deeds, and I will remember their sins no more. When he speaks of a new one, he has deemed the first one obsolete, and what is being deemed obsolete is in fact growing old near its abolition. Then part 16, this would be nine one, chapter 9 now. 
So then, the first covenant did in fact have requirements pertaining to divine service and a sacred system of offerings. A tabernacle was constructed, the first one, in which are the lampstand and the table and the offering of bread. This was called the holy places. Behind the second curtain was a tabernacle, the one called the holy places of the holy one. It had a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold. It was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded and the tablets of the covenant. Now above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Now is not the time to speak in detail concerning these things. Now when these things have been set up in this way, the priests who are performing the ritualistic services are continually going into the first tabernacle. But into the second, once a year, the high priest alone can go, not without blood that he offers up for himself and for the ignorant sins of the people. The inner life of the sanctified individual makes this clear, that the way to propitiation for these sanctified individuals has not yet been made manifest so long as the tent system of the first covenant still has standing. This tent system, up to the present time, was functioning as a parable. In accord with it, both gifts and offerings are offered up that are not able to make teleos the self-awareness of the worshiper with regard to his standing before divine mercy. For these focus on nothing but foods, drinks, and various washings, requirements of a physical nature, imposed until a time when things will be put right. Now, I don't think we'll get past that if we even get that far. So, just to review, we've looked at the quotation out of Jeremiah 31 that, be, that basically occupies most of chapter 8 of Hebrews. We looked at that last week. Let me just review some of the things that we noticed there. First of all, it's a promise to the Jews. It's to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. It doesn't directly involve Gentiles. Now, we know from the rest of the New Testament that it has indirect application to Gentiles. But as Jeremiah the prophet is proclaiming it, it's a promise that God is making to Jews, not to us Gentiles. It's important to recognize that. It's a promise with regard to the future, and when I say that, I mean the future to us. It has never been fulfilled. That promise has never been kept yet. It still awaits a time in history where Jeremiah 31 is going to actually be fulfilled. My contention is it won't be fulfilled until Jesus, our Lord, has returned, establishes a kingdom on earth in Israel, and it's those people, the Jews that survive to that day and enter into that kingdom, they are the ones who are going to experience everything that the promise of Jeremiah 31 is talking about. Second observation The new covenant is not, as it appears to be, and as I read it for years and years and years, it is not the unilateral promise of universal sanctification of the people of Israel in a future generation. That's not what it is. The new covenant is something else entirely different. Jeremiah 31 does speak of a promise of universal sanctification, and you understand what I mean by sanctification, God is going to come and he's going to put it into their hearts, into their inner being, into their inner desires, 
to want to know God, love God, fear God, obey God. So his instructions to them are going to be written on their heart. And what that idiom means is they are going to be put in their insides in such a way that they will want to keep his instructions. His Torah is not something they will disregard. His Torah is something that they will take to heart, literally take to heart. Well, that's a promise. That's what's going to happen in that day. No one will need to teach his neighbor to know God, for they will all know God, from the least of them to the greatest of them, God says. Every single individual who survives into that kingdom, some people call it the millennial kingdom, every Jew that survives and is a member of that millennial kingdom will be a sanctified individual, an individual whose heart has been touched by the magic of God's touch and turned into a person who wants to know him and honor him and obey him. That's the sense in which the New Testament talks about the new covenant being relevant to you, a Gentile today. Because who are we? We are people whom God has invaded our lives, has touched us, and is turning us into people who want to know God and honor God and fear God and obey God. So the promise that Jeremiah made to the people of Israel that's going to be fulfilled in the end time, we Gentiles are experiencing exactly that same dynamic at work in our lives today. And that's the sense in which that promise is relevant to us. But the promise is not about us. The promise is about how that's going to happen wholesale to a whole generation of Jews in the future. That has never happened in the whole history of mankind, that a whole society, a whole culture, a whole people group have actually turned their hearts to God and are what we would call believers, that they actually are believers. The world has never known such a society. We've had Christian culture, we've had Christian society, but we're only Christian in name and externally and the Christianity has influenced the culture and has had an impact on the culture, but it doesn't penetrate to the hearts of the people in the culture. Well, that's going to be true of the Jews in this millennial kingdom one day that Jeremiah is talking about. So the promise is there, but for reasons that I will outline here, that's not what the new covenant is, however. The promise of universal sanctification of that generation is a fact that corresponds to the giving of the new covenant, but it's not the new covenant itself. The next thing to note is that if all we had to go on was Jeremiah 31, we wouldn't know what the new covenant is. We wouldn't know what the promises of the new covenant are. He just mentions it. After these days, God is going to create a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Okay? And what will that covenant be? Jeremiah 31 doesn't tell us. So you may ask, how is it that Paul knows what it is? And I think that's a very important question. Why is Paul so confident? Well, let me answer that in a second. First of all, what does Paul think it is? And then I want to answer the question how Paul knows that. Paul is understanding the new covenant to be an entirely different basis for attaining divine mercy as a response to my sinfulness. What were you to do? What did the Torah, what did the instructions of God in the Mosaic Covenant tell you to do when you came face to face with your moral depravity and your disobedience and your rebellion against God and so on? What were you supposed to do? Well, 
God's Torah was, you take this animal and you take it to the priest and the priest does this with it and he takes some blood and he smears it on your ear in the corner of the altar and he burns part of it and gives you part of it to eat and on and on and on. I don't even know what I'm talking about. But you had certain procedures that you were supposed to follow that were prescribed by God's Torah, God's instructions in the covenant. That's how you dealt with Sin. And what was your expectation? What was your hope? Your expectation and your hope is that through your obedience to these instructions, God was going to meet you with mercy. He was not going to hold your sin against you and give you what you deserve for your sin. Rather, God was going to grant you mercy and the blessing that would follow from God being merciful to you. And that's how you dealt with it. Well, when Jeremiah then, when God through Jeremiah promises a new covenant, what does Paul think he has in view? The day was going to come where how God would instruct you to deal with sin is entirely different from that. It's not offering animal sacrifices according to the instructions of the Mosaic Covenant. It's believing in the Messiah that God sent into the world to offer up himself as an offering on your behalf and to understand the meaning and significance of his death and entrust yourself to that. That's the new covenant. And as I mentioned last week, I think that gets reinforced, and I think Paul understands this, that gets reinforced by what Jesus said in the upper room the night before he died, holding up the wine from the Seder meal, this is the blood of the new covenant which has been shed for many. This is my blood, the blood of the new covenant, which has been shed for many. Jesus was understanding the new covenant to be an entirely new basis upon which we expected mercy from God. It's no longer on the basis of animal sacrifices that we brought to the temple. It is now on the basis of what Jesus has done on our behalf, voluntarily going to his own death as a propitiatory offering offered up to God for my sins. And as we have seen throughout Hebrews, that's not the end of it. And the more important part is thereby qualifying himself to be a high priest who can walk into the very presence of God and appeal to God for mercy on my behalf. So why do I have any kind of expectation, any kind of confidence that God is going to respond to me with mercy because of the high priest who is advocating for me, the high priest who is acting as my intercessor and is making the appeal for mercy on my behalf. Because of who he is and because of his relationship to God, I have a basis for confidence that I'm actually going to be granted mercy by God. Well, that's the new covenant, the covenant that Israel in the time of Moses didn't know. They didn't have. It wasn't even instituted yet. It wasn't even on the radar screen yet. It wasn't on the radar screen until the Messiah came into the world and died for the sins of the world and did what he did on our behalf. Now we have an entirely new basis, and that's the establishing of the new covenant. Okay, well, how does Paul know that? Because if I read Jeremiah 31, I don't see any of that in Jeremiah 31. All I really see is the fact that there's going to be a new covenant, but I don't know what the nature of that new covenant is. So how did Paul conclude that that's what Jeremiah 31 was talking about? I think the answer to that question, a little logic lesson first, 
So much that is of any importance, we know through what some philosophers would call abductive reasoning. Not deductive reasoning, not inductive reasoning, but abductive reasoning. I think it's Charles Pierce who invented that title. We're very familiar with abductive reasoning, we just don't know that we are. Abductive reasoning basically is the reasoning where we, with human intelligence, we take a few data points and pieces of evidence, and creatively and imaginatively, we create a backstory that can account for and can explain every one of my data points and every piece of evidence that I have in front of me. And because my backstory can explain the evidence, my reasoning goes, could be true. My backstory might actually be the truth. Now, how will I know that it is actually the truth? Abductive reasoning does not lead you to certainty. It only leads you to plausibility to begin with. But what makes me confident that I've arrived at truth through abductive reasoning is I'm basically issuing a challenge to anyone and everyone around. Can you come up with a better story? Can you come up with a better explanation for all of these data points? All of them, not just some of them, but all of them? If you can come up with a better explanation, then that's true, and my explanation is not. But until and unless you come up with a better explanation... I'm betting that this is the truth. I'm betting that this is how it is. So much of importance that we believe, we've arrived at it through abductive reasoning. Let me just give you some concrete examples. That's exactly what happens in the courtroom in a criminal trial. You've got the footprint, the broken glass, the fingerprint here, the eyewitness testimony here. You've got all this piece of evidence And the prosecution stands up and says, let me tell you a story that can account for all of this evidence that you have been presented with. And their story always ends up with the accused being guilty, right, in their story. Then a good, well, it used to be the case. (laughs) We have other techniques and other strategies, but ignore all that. Ideally, the way the court system is set up, a defense attorney would stand up and said, let me tell you a better story. Or at least, let me tell you another story about the broken glass, the footprint, the fingerprint, the eyewitness testimony and everything. I can tell you a different story that can account just as well, if not better, for all of those data points, all of that piece of evidence than what story the prosecutor told you. So don't you dare convict my client, because you don't know whether his story is true, because I came up with another story that might very well be true. That's abductive reasoning. Paul, I would argue, knows that Jeremiah 31 is talking about the death of Jesus for the sins of mankind, and that being the new and better basis for us receiving divine mercy through abductive reasoning from all the evidence that he can glean from the scriptures, from the Torah, from the prophets, from the Psalms. There's all this evidence out there that is evidence toward what God's purposes in history and in the history of the Jews, what his purposes were, what he told you his purposes were, what he told you about what was going to happen and why it was going to happen. And I would submit that it's on that basis that Paul comes along and reads Jeremiah 31, a new covenant. Well, okay, let me back up. That's part of his evidence. The other part of his evidence is 
the teaching of Jesus himself. It's not like Jesus didn't tell his disciples on a handful of occasions, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to get arrested, mocked, held in contempt, scourged, and crucified, and I will raise on the third day. But I'm dying for the sins of the world. It's not like he didn't say that. It's not like he didn't tell his disciples ahead of time exactly what he intended to do. And then probably most importantly for Paul, Paul's whole theology is explainable in terms of his own experience. Paul didn't buy this Jesus is the Messiah stuff from the get-go. In fact, he was so thoroughly in opposition to it that he went to throw into jail and scourge and probably kill people who did believe that Jesus was the Messiah, and he committed his life to it. He wanted to stamp out this lie, what he thought was a lie. But as he was journeying to Damascus, you remember, Jesus, alive from the dead, appeared to Paul and said, Hi, Paul. I'm Jesus. I'm not dead. I'm alive, which shook Paul's whole worldview to the core. Because here he's faced with, on the one hand, he had an experience that was undeniable to him. Jesus was alive. Jesus had appeared to him. So Jesus wasn't dead. And Jesus was the Messiah. But he has this problem that he has to solve. Okay, but I had my theology all worked out, and there was no room in my theology for a getting himself dead Messiah, getting himself killed by the Romans Messiah. That did not compute in my worldview. And if you know enough about Paul's biography, there's a several-year gap. It may be on the order of a decade or more gap between that experience and him becoming a teacher. Why? Because I think he was studying. You remember he says in Galatians, immediately upon escaping with his life from Damascus, he went to Arabia for, does he give the number of years? I think he says for a number of years. I think he gives the number. What was he doing there? In a place of safety from people who wanted him dead, I think he was pouring over the scriptures from a different perspective now. I need to understand the Torah in such a way that I can account for a whole new data point that I didn't used to have. God would send his Messiah to die. How do I make any sense out of that? And in the course of making sense out of that, of course, he rethought everything about how he understood the prophets. Well, one of those things he would have rethought was Jeremiah 31. After those days, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Ah, Paul says, I'm betting you that that new covenant is Jesus' death on the cross as the real and true and ultimate basis for the propitiation of God's wrath. That's what the new covenant is. And that would be confirmed by all the other things he was seeing in the prophets, by Jesus' own claim, by Jesus' own teaching, you have all this information all of a sudden falling in place. If that's the new covenant that God was promising through Jeremiah, then all this stuff makes sense. So I think that's how he gets there. But however he got there, this much is clear. That is how he's interpreting Jeremiah 31. Because when we put it in the context of Hebrews, what is smack dab in the middle of an argument for what? It's smack dab in the middle of an argument about how the offering of animals in the temple 
was not effective in attaining and securing divine mercy for the worshiper. But Jesus' intercession, Jesus as not only the propitiatory offering, but the high priest who is going to intercede for us, that is effective. If he's reading Jeremiah as a promise of universal sanctification, that is completely irrelevant to his argument. But if he's seeing it as a brand new basis for propitiation, it's exactly what his argument needs. Okay, let me let you have at it with questions you might have about Jeremiah 31 or the way Paul's looking at it. He first says, days are coming in uh, my verse 8, and then he says, after those days in verse 10. That's one question I have, what are those days? And then he goes from the house of Israel and Judah to just calling it the house of Israel. Mm-hmm. And that seems significant to me, uh, that is he no longer viewing them as a divided people right. on that second one? I think that's true. And he's, okay. So what about the days? Okay, days are coming. When are they coming? When the Messiah comes into the world and ends up in the course of time providing that offering to God that is the propitiation day where he's dying for the sins of mankind. That's when the covenant came. That after those days, give me the whole sentence. There. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law into their minds and I will okay. write them. He's just described the new covenant is not going to be like the covenant I made with them when I brought them out of Egypt, where they disregarded it. And because they disregarded it, I didn't bless them in the way that I had promised to bless them. I neglected them instead. Well, after those days, that is after the time of their disobedience and my neglect, the time is going to come where I'm going to do something different. So does the neglect, it's kind of weird to think of God neglecting the people that he's... Well, neglect, don't go by the English translation. It's clear what he means is my not being mindful to bless them and prosper them and keep them safe and take care of them, as I promised they would do if they kept my covenant. Well, they didn't keep my covenant, and I didn't do that. So that would be the Roman occupation, the destruction of Israel, Jerusalem and the temple, scattering to the four winds, being persecuted in pretty much every country they hid in, fled to. The Holocaust, Western anti-Semitism, the whole tribulation of God's people that they have endured for millennia. But the only way they will be able to stand united and enter into the covenant is when he does this. Then he will re- yes. remember them and bless them as he promised to bless them. Right. So the I'm, I'm thinking of that the thing Noah talked about about how the covenant reads like a, a legal agreement, a legal document. How the two parties enter into it, mm-hmm. and the people have broken their side, mm-hmm. and so God's no longer obligated to keep his side. Mm-hmm. So then he's going to make them. As I understand it, he's going to make them able to keep their responsibilities towards the covenant so he can bless them. That's what the promise of Jeremiah 31 is. Yeah, exactly. But that's not what the new covenant is. That's what the promise of Jeremiah 31 is. But the new covenant is the basis for mercy and forgiveness that's going to be changed along the way. So interestingly, the promise still hasn't been kept, but the covenant that's made with Israel has already been put in place with the establishing of this new basis for... You and I are benefiting from that. It's Jesus' propitiatory offering. That's the the basis for this new covenant, I would argue. Is this a good time to take a little side road, an imaginative side road, and make a commentary just for a minute or so on what it might have been like for Paul to 
come from his worldview, be confronted by Jesus like you talked about, and then go away seemingly to some far off place and study and change his mind and, and so to speak, work out a theology, work out a new worldview. What might have that been like? And has there been scholarship done on, is there anything known about that time at all? No, a lot of speculation, but no knowledge. Well, I can only go from my own experience. I can remember going away to college, going away to university, believing what I believed as a committed Christian, committed to Christianity as a religious commitment. I was going to believe it come hell or high water. Some of you probably heard me tell the story. When I was going away to the university, I remember people in the church warning me, especially when I hinted that I might be studying philosophy, warning me that you're going to lose your faith. And I assured them that, no, there's no way in the world I'm going to lose my faith. I'm just not going to lose my faith. Now, I was speaking out of a religious commitment. That is, even if Christianity is not true, I'm going to continue believing it because that's how loyal I am and that's how faithful I am and that's how committed I am. Well, thank God I could have never kept that promise. Truth was too important to me to be able to simply maintain that kind of religious commitment. I didn't know that at the time, but as it turns out, truth was too important to me. But I remember sitting in philosophy classes. I'd be walking across the quad at Stanford, my head literally swimming, because I'd be, if what that professor said is right, then everything I believe is wrong. And the emotional response was terrifying, was unsettling. My whole world was whirling. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me, but it was one of the most uncomfortable things that ever happened to me because the kind of uncertainty and insecurity that settles in and overwhelms you is just an awful, awful feeling. The kind of paradigm shift that Paul had to go through was like that. But I think he had a different experience. He had an experience more like what I experienced later in my life is when finally a piece fell in place that finally started to make sense out of all this stuff. And when later I made enough paradigm shifts that Christianity was starting to actually make sense to me, now all of a sudden learning new things was a joy. It was a delight. It was that joy of discovery oh, that's how it works, and that's how it fits, and wow, that's coherent, and that's why this is true, and that's why this other thing is true, and that's why the Bible says this, and that's why... And that kind of sense of everything all of a sudden falling into place is almost exhilarating. I think that's probably what Paul experienced, was the exhilaration of all of a sudden his lifetime of study with all that knowledge he had was all of a sudden falling into clarity and coherence. And that had to be one of the most exciting experiences in the world, I would think. And would he encountered a Jewish community less pharisaical and less Talmudic? In Arabia? Yeah. I don't know the answer to that. He would have run into Jewish communities, but I don't know if they would have been more open or not. I would expect that he did that largely in isolation, though. I, I don't think he hammered it out in community. I think he knew what he knew. And he just had to find out how it all fit together. And I think he had all the resources he needed to do that. Do we know about the timing and the sources of the growth of those communities? Yeah, I I don't. You may not be interested in this, but within Messianic Judaism, there's a real question. How are we to speak, if I were a Messianic Jew, I'd be asking the question, how am I to relate to the Mosaic Covenant? And 
what does Jeremiah 31 have to say about how I should relate to the Mosaic Covenant? Now, I'm not sure that Jeremiah 31 says enough that it actually settles the question, but I do think we have some subtle hints in Jeremiah 31 that the only thing that's different between the Mosaic Covenant and this new covenant that God is going to make is the basis for propitiation. I think that's the only thing that's new. Otherwise, there's this tremendous continuity between the Mosaic Covenant and the New Covenant. Nothing would suggest that God is ever going to come along and say, let's invent a whole new religion, you guys, okay? Shall we? Let's not be Jews anymore. Let's, let's not do Jewish things anymore. Let's, do, let's be Rastafarian or something like that. He's not doing that. He's simply putting in place within the context of the Mosaic Covenant a new basis for propitiation that makes the animal sacrifices obsolete. Remember, that's what he says in Hebrews, that by declaring there was a new covenant, he makes the first covenant obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is near to out-and-out abolition. Well, what is it that's becoming obsolete? The basis for dealing with sin in your life. That has become obsolete because of Jesus. So the animal sacrifices don't make any sense any longer once you have grasped that the way to propitiation is belief in the Messiah who died for your sins. Then the animal sacrifices become irrelevant. But all the rest of the Mosaic Covenant, I think, remains intact. So what would happen in our future when that generation of Jews, God writes his Torah on their heart, and they have a desire to keep it, I think they will keep the Sabbaths, and they will keep the festivals, and they will probably keep the dietary regulations with a different attitude and perspective than some Jews take, because it will be the attitude and perspective that Jesus taught us to take toward them. But nonetheless, they will see those as valid aspects and valid elements of God's instruction, of God's Torah. But There won't be any need for animal sacrifices any longer because how do you keep the new covenant? If the new covenant is written on my heart, what's the commandment? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So I think that's what you will keep rather than bring a lamb to the altar and do this with it and that with it. Do you have anything to add, Rusty, to that? Or do you want to object to anything? There are differing perspectives, which that's exactly right. So were you going to maybe talk about what the spectrums are? For example, there's at least a handful of Messianic Jews who would argue that there will be animal sacrifices in the coming kingdom. I've heard a little bit about why they think that, but I don't know exactly how that plays out. And then varying degrees of how much they feel like they should keep the law as well, right? So... How that decision gets made is one that's curious to me. And and obviously the other one is where along the line does the Gentile participate, if at all, in any of those things? And they disagree on that too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my perspective is the law is a Jewish thing and it has nothing to do with me. I don't have to do any of it. But I do have to be godly. And obviously there's a significant overlap between the Torah and godliness, the demands of godliness. So, yes, there's much I can learn from the law. There's much I can learn from the Mosaic Covenant. But my perspective is is that as a Gentile, 
It's not my gig. It has nothing to do with me. But yeah, and I don't think any of those questions can be settled from Jeremiah 31. It wouldn't surprise me if there were animal sacrifices in the temple in the millennial kingdom, but you'd have to completely reinterpret them and understand them differently than you would likely have understood them in the time of Moses. Because they are no longer, you're no longer offering the animal up as the appeal to God for mercy, as if that is what God wants from you. Rather, you'd have to be offering the animal up as some kind of memorial of an offering that was the offering that God wanted and that God desired. And it would have to be some kind of memorial of that. Now, if they can work that out, that's fine with me. I would just add that one of the questions that is difficult to answer later on in the New Covenant, there's the, the discussion of the new, there won't be a lack for a king or a priest. Right, right. And it doesn't appear that's the same person. Right. So what would the priest be doing mm-hmm. in the kingdom? Yeah. Well, okay, yeah. There are other offerings besides propitiatory offerings in the temple, and I don't think the New Covenant does anything to do away with those other offerings. So, yeah, there's still plenty of room for a priest. Thank you. So, in the Old Testament, with the Old Covenant, the way to obtain God's mercy was by doing, like getting the animals, bringing them, the priest doing his thing, blah, blah, blah. That's a thing that people did. It was an action, an outward behavior, which I think was supposed to have an inward orientation as well. Is that right? Mm-hmm. That it, okay. Mm-hmm. The new covenant, I understand that what you're saying is that it's God's new instruction for how to deal with sin, how to get his mercy. Mm-hmm. That seems like a very primarily inward mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. Of course, there's the reality that it, our behavior would at least somehow, sometimes, reflect something about that inward orientation, but it seems inside, very mm-hmm. internal. And the difference there is, well, first of all, is that true? Like yes, yes. Outward behavior, inward orientation. Yeah. Now, the prophets will tell you God always wanted inwardness. He wanted a broken and contrite heart. He didn't want your stinking meat. He wanted a broken and contrite heart. So that's always been true. But the instructions were, bring this carcass and the blood of this carcass and do various things with it in a ritual. That was always the outward performance that you were to do in response to your sin. All that changes with Jesus. There's none of that outward stuff. It's completely and totally and wholly and only inward Now, some sacramentalists may argue with that, but I would argue in the New Testament, it's only inward. In the next paragraph, Paul's going to make a point out of that. He's going to say, that's one of the reasons we knew it didn't work. It was just food and drink and washings, stuff that pertained to the outward physical body. Surely that does not get a person mercy. What the underlying assumption that Paul is making is the inwardness is far more substantial and authentic and real than anything you can do, any ritual, any practice, any performance that you can give God. That's meaningless. It's what's inward that is weighty. And I can believe that God would grant mercy to contrition, real, authentic contrition in me, in a way that it's hard to believe. All he wants me to do is to burn a slab of meat on this altar and we're good. 
Especially since contrition doesn't come easy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, exactly. That, like not it, just believing in yes. Jesus, but believing, as yes. you said, that what his death was about, what that says about us. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly. not an easy, like, okay, I'll just accept that. Yeah. Um, that's Christians <laughs> have tried to make it easy, but it's not. No, it, it sorts me out. It also makes me possibly be able to empathize a little bit better with some Jewish folks who might say, it can't be that easy. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. what do you mean? Yeah. Like, we've been doing these things forever, and it's hard work, and what are you talking about? Just believing and becoming contrite. Um, yeah. Thank you. Okay. Should we press on? So now, and this provides part of the evidence for how it is that Paul is understanding the New Covenant in Jeremiah 31, what's the next thing he does? He compares and contrasts the Mosaic Covenant to the New Covenant with respect to its effectiveness in actually securing divine mercy. We read half of that. I left the other half unread. But in the next section, starting with 9.1, paragraph 42 Part 16 down through 9.10 is where he talks about the ineffectiveness of the animal offerings in the Mosaic Covenant. And in part 17, he's going to talk about the contrasting effectiveness of Jesus' intercession on our behalf. So if he goes to talk about the effectiveness and ineffectiveness with respect to propitiation in the New Covenants, he must think Jeremiah 31 is about a new covenant and an old covenant with respect to propitiation. Otherwise, the structure of his argument makes no sense at all. So that would be part of my argument about why I think it's clear that Paul reads Jeremiah 31 to be about propitiation. The new covenant is a new basis for propitiation and mercy. It's not about universal sanctification. Okay, so the first part of this, we'll take a look at that. This goes really, this reads pretty quickly and it's pretty easy. He's going to talk about the Mosaic Covenant now. How are you supposed to deal with sin under the Mosaic Covenant? Well, the first paragraph, he discusses the furnishings of the tabernacle. He says, you've got, Moses was instructed to build two tent structures. One circumvented, we usually call it the Holy Place? Is that what we usually say? It's plural in the Greek here, so I translated it the holy places, and then the holy places of the, and then plural again. And I'm not sure. I don't know what to do with that. I have a lot more study to do, but I'm inclined to take it as the holy places of the Holy One, because that was supposed to be the very place where God was present, in the Shekinah glory would come and sit over the covenant in that place. So it was the holy place of the Holy One, I think. Whereas the region surrounding that was the holy place, and then outside of that tent structure was the outer courtyard where the worshipers could come and go into that place. In the holy place, only priests were to go, and they would take your offering, and they would offer it on the altar there in the holy place and do this and that, and go about making their offerings there. But nobody, no one whatsoever was supposed to go into the holy of holies, the holy places of the holy one, except once a year, the high priest could go in once a year on the Day of Atonement to make that significant offering on that day. And that's the only time a human being was supposed to ever 
go in there. Well, so he starts by describing the architecture and furnishing of the tabernacle. So then, the first covenant... Now, a lot of translations take the first and the second here to be the tent structures, the first tent structure and the second tent structure. I think that's to misconstrue what Paul is saying. By first and second, I think without exception, if I remember correctly, he means the first covenant as opposed to the second covenant, that is the older covenant as opposed to the new covenant that he just talked about in Jeremiah 31, right? There's the first covenant, and then there's the covenant that replaced it. So that's the first and the second. So then the first covenant did in fact have requirements pertaining to divine service and a sacred system of offerings. A tabernacle, or that which is just a tent structure, a tent structure was constructed. The first one, okay, there he uses first for that one, in which are the lampstand and the table and the offering of bread. Okay, there, what he's talking about is if you were to go into the holy place, the first tent structure, on one side, I think the right side, was a table where you had the 12 loaves, the showbread, where a ritual was performed where you're offering up these loaves of bread to God. That was in the holy place on the right-hand side. You had the lampstand on the left-hand side, and immediately in front of you, right in front of the curtain barrier between the holy place and the holy of holies was the altar of incense. So that's what he's describing as that layout. A tabernacle was constructed, the first one in which are the lampstand and the table and the offering of bread. This was called the holy place or the holy places. Behind the second curtain was a tabernacle, the one called the holy places of the holy one or often translated the holy of holies. It had a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold. In it was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded and the tablets of the covenant. Now everything that he describes there is located inside that compartment, that tent structure, except for the golden altar of incense, which was actually right outside the door of the Holy of Holies as you entered into the Holy of Holies. But for some reason he connects it with the worship of the Holy of Holies. So he says the second curtain had the golden altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant, and so on. Above it, the Ark of the Covenant, were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Now is not the time to speak in detail concerning these things. Okay, It's not his purpose to exegete the symbolism of the worship in the tabernacle. Probably... If he couldn't, somebody could maybe do that. I expect that everything that God designed the tabernacle to be was intentional and purposive and didactic in nature. It was intended to symbolize things that would teach us something about God, represent to us things, truths about God. But that's not Paul's purpose. So he says, look, I don't have time to get into this. I'm not going to describe in detail what the service was and what all that stuff meant. The important thing, he says, is when all that stuff got set up, when these things have been set up in this way, the priests who are performing the ritualistic services are continually going into the first tabernacle, the holy place, right? But into the second, the holy of holies, once a year, the high priest alone can go, not without blood that he offers up for himself and for the ignorant sins of the people. So on the Day of Atonement, he makes an offering from the blood of the bull. He takes that into the 
holy of holies, the holy places of the Holy One, and does the prescribed ritual with it, he's offering it up for his own sins and for the ignorant sins of the people. Now, why does he call it the ignorant sins of the people? I think that's probably reflecting some language that you get in the Old Testament itself. A distinction is made between high-handed sins and other sins. I can't remember if there's a name. Jesus spoke of the unforgivable sin. There is no atonement for just out-and-out rejection of God and the things of God. People who reject God and the things of God are just condemned. There is no mercy there for them. Sins that are not committed out of an out-and-out rejection of God, an out-and-out rebellion against God, an unrepentant rebellion against God, any other sin is completely and totally forgivable. God will be merciful to us. The only way we will ever not secure mercy is if we tell God to go to hell because we're not that interested in him. We don't want his damn mercy. If that's our attitude, if that's our perspective, then there will be no mercy for us. But anyone who is willing to acknowledge their failing, acknowledge their sin, acknowledge their evil, acknowledge their rebelliousness, and seek mercy from God, there's mercy to be found. So the ignorant sins of the people, I think, is Paul's way here of describing those kinds of normal, ordinary sins that all of us commit all the time that are just out of our sinfulness and our depravity but are not a sign of our out-and-out, unrepentant rejection of God. So that's what the high priest was doing when he took the offering in on the Day of Atonement. Okay, now we get to paragraph 44. This is verse 8, chapter 9, 9-8. Now, if you're looking at another English translation, you're not going to recognize what I'm saying. I have completely translated this in a different way. And you can argue with me. We can talk about who's right, whose translation is right and wrong. But let me just start by, from my translation. I think that what Paul is saying is the inner life of the sanctified individual makes this clear, colon. He's going to tell us next what it is that it makes clear. The inner life of the sanctified individual makes this clear, that the way to propitiation for these sanctified individuals has not been made manifest so long as the tent system of the first covenant still has standing. Okay, so what he's saying is, put yourself in the shoes of some contemporary of Moses. You live back in the time of Moses, and you sin, and you take your animals to the tabernacle, and you do, the priest does his thing with the, and you walk away from there. What do you know and understand about your situation deep down inside? What do you understand about yourself? Paul says anyone who ever practiced the animal sacrifices under the first covenant never came away confident that they had secured mercy from God. It just didn't happen, he said. So now, let me step back. He says that's what I think he means by the inner life. It's literally pneuma in Greek, spirit, usually translated spirit, but the spirit of the sanctified individual, of the hagios one. There are people who are not hagios. There are people who are not being sanctified. There are people where God is not working on their insides, 
What do they think when they walk away from the temple having offered an offering? You should have seen the sheep that I gave God today. If anyone's going to get mercy, it would be me. You take it as a badge of, you take it as a matter of pride in your self-righteousness, in your utter complete ignorance of who you are and of how unworthy you are. You simply can't see past the fact that God told you to do this and you did this. Oh my, what a good boy am I. Oh my, how I must be wonderful because I did what God told me to do. Because you don't have a clue how depraved you are, how unworthy you are, how deep sin goes into the depths of who you are. But if you're a sanctified individual, you understand that about yourself. You understand how deeply, deeply flawed you are and how incredibly unworthy you are. And so you take an animal to the priest who takes some blood from the animal and burns part of the carcass of the animal and you walk away going, that's what he said to do. But I don't, how can that be enough? How can that be something that can effectively secure God's mercy for me, for someone as unworthy and as depraved as I am? I'm just, all I know to do is what God instructed us to do, but I'm thinking that there's got to be something else and there's got to be something more that's going to be the basis of God's mercy because this can't possibly be it. I think that's exactly what Paul is saying. The inner life of the sanctified individual makes this much clear. The way to propitiation, that is the way to secure the mercy of God, the way to know that God's wrath has been propitiated with respect to me, a sanctified individual, has not yet been put in place. It hasn't been made manifest so long as all we're doing is offering up animals in the tabernacle. And we're going to look here in the next chapter, in Psalm 40, I'm going to argue that Paul recognized that. Did I say Paul? I meant David, sorry. Paragraph 50, this would be 10, 3 or 4 or something like that. He's quoting Psalm 40. You do not want to sacrifice an offering. Rather, you have arranged a body for me. In whole burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you find no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. You do not want a sacrifice and offering, David says. Rather, you have arranged a body for me. I think Paul is going to understand David to be saying, that's not really what works. That's not really what cuts it. That's not really what this is all about. You're not wanting animals. Whatever offering you want and need, you're going to supply that for yourself because this ain't it. These animals are not it. So I think David is an example of the kind of sanctified individual he's talking about. The inner life of the sanctified individual makes this clear that the way to divine mercy has not yet been put in place It has not entered into history. It's not been instituted yet so long as the tent system of the first covenant still has standing. So as long as I don't know any better than to do what the Mosaic covenant tells me to do, then if I have any clue at all, if I'm being sanctified and I have been given any kind of insight at all by God, I'm going to recognize that this isn't the basis for my receiving mercy. It's something else. I don't know what it is, but it's something else that God's going to have to supply because this ain't it. So in his argument, notice what Paul's doing. He lays out the furniture of the temple. He tells you what the priest does. He tells you what the high priest does as prescribed by the Mosaic Covenant. And then he just simply declares 
but anyone who understands anything about anything (laughs) knows that's not the way to mercy. We're not going to get divine mercy by obeying the Mosaic Covenant in this way. At least, now, remember, we've talked about this in the past. It's not that people in, in the Mosaic Covenant could not receive mercy. They did. And how did they demonstrate their contrition such that they did get that mercy? By bringing animal offerings. And why are they going to receive mercy? Because of Jesus. has nothing to do with the animal offerings that they gave. That was just the way they expressed their contrition in their context. But the basis for the mercy that they were going to receive is the same as yours and mine. We have an intercessor, the high priest who's the real, ultimate, and final high priest who's going to appeal to God on my behalf and intercede for me. But that's the point he's making. Not that we come to realize, well, God doesn't want my offerings, so I won't bring them. Rather, he's saying the sanctified individual in the time of Moses would recognize, I'm going to bring these offerings because God said to do it, but this cannot possibly be the basis upon which God would show mercy to such as me. It's got to be something else. Okay. Then he says, this tent system up to the present time was functioning as a parable. This wasn't the way to propitiation because this was only a parable of the way to propitiation. It wasn't the real deal. It wasn't the ultimate basis itself. It was functioning as a parable. Now, parable, we're accustomed to thinking of parable as an actual specific genre. Jesus spoke in parables. That's not what he means by parable. The word in Greek, parabolos, is much wider in its meaning. It simply means Anything that is representational of something else is a parabolos. An analogy is a parabolos. Figurative language is a parabolos. It just means that I mean this, but let me communicate this by slapping this down beside it and tell you this is like that. That's a parable. That's the sense in which he means it here. The tent system was a parabolic kind of representation of the whole dynamic of needing to find mercy from God for my sins. And the sacrificial system was a parable of the real, ultimate way in which we should find mercy from God. In accord with it, this parable, both gifts and offerings are offered up that are not able to make teleos, the self-awareness of the worshiper with regard to his standing before divine mercy. Okay, we've talked a little bit about being made teleos, What does it mean to be made teleos? Well, as a worshiper, why am I going into the temple to offer up these offerings? I want to reach a point where I have some kind of confidence, some kind of awareness, some kind of self-understanding that God will grant mercy to me. God will not hold my sins against me, but will rather overlook them and grant me mercy and blessing instead. I've achieved that telos, and therefore I am teleos, if I come away from that temple with that kind of self-understanding and that kind of own awareness. I walk away from the temple going, I have secured mercy from God. If I don't know that I have secured mercy from God, then I am not teleos. I don't walk away from that temple teleos. So, Notice what Paul's saying. In accord with it, both gifts and offerings are offered up that are not able to make teleos the understanding, the self-understanding, the self-awareness of the worshiper 
with regard to his standing before divine mercy. In other words, it's a mouthful, but in other words, he's just saying they didn't work. They didn't get you what you were looking for. They didn't get you what you wanted. You wanted some kind of confidence that God would be merciful to you. You didn't come away with any, any kind of confidence that God would be merciful to you, not on the basis of these gifts and offerings that were prescribed in the Mosaic Covenant. And then he tells us why, and this comes to your point, Karin, earlier. For these focus on nothing but foods, drinks, and various washings, requirements of a physical nature, and I might add an outward physical nature, imposed until a time when things will be put right. So he's basically, I think, primarily, I don't know exactly what he means because I think I'd have to understand the offering system in the Mosaic Covenant better than I do to have any kind of confidence to interpret what Paul is saying here. When he says foods and drinks, are these foods and drinks for God? Or are these foods and drinks for the worshiper that he's talking about? In the ancient religions, in polytheistic religions, when you took your offerings to the god, you were giving them a banquet. This was their food. And occasionally, not often, but occasionally, the Old Testament uses that same language with respect to God. This is God's food. I think you have God saying, you gave me food, or something like that. I can't remember the context. But using that very old and ancient and archaic language to describe the offerings. This is food for the gods. Is that what Paul has in mind here? Is that what he's going... I don't know. Maybe. I'm a little uncomfortable with that, but I can't rule that out. But the other possibility is so many of these offerings, part of the ritual was for you to take the sacrificial animal and feast on it, eat it. So, And certainly the priests ate some of it. So is that what he's talking about? But whichever one he's talking about, I think neither of those, I don't need to understand which in order to understand his main point. I think the main point he's making is, why did they not bring me to a confidence that I was going to get divine mercy? Because look what I was offering God. Just this outward, fleshly, material stuff. It wasn't my contrition. It wasn't my heart. It wasn't something inward. It wasn't something substantial in that way. It was just this silly stuff that I was offering him. Am I really genuinely supposed to think that the ground, the basis upon which God is going to grant me mercy is this, a grade A steak? And that's why it couldn't, that's why it didn't work. Because instinctively, intuitively, somehow we knew that surely nothing as outward as that can possibly provide a basis upon which God thinks I'm fit for mercy. It's got to be something else, something different, something other than that. And then in the next section, we're going to quit here, but in the next section, he's going to tell us, by way of contrast, what does secure mercy for us in contrast. And, and he's going to go to Jesus, his intercession, his serving as my priest, his offering up his very own life, as the propitiatory offering that becomes the basis upon which God grants mercy and so on. But we'll look at that next week.